Welcome to Challenging Silence, a podcast by Women's Health in Women's Hands Community Health Center. We are back again to have much needed discussions about topics related to female genital mutilation or cutting with survivors, advocates, and community members. We're your hosts, Tommy Lola and Sauda. Challenging Silence is brought to you by The Flourish Project, made possible through funding from Women in Gender Equality Canada. You can listen to this podcast series on all major podcast listening platforms and our website, flourishaccess.ca. Please note that this podcast covers topics of sensitive nature, including domestic abuse and violence. To ensure privacy and safety, some guests have chosen to remain anonymous. This podcast is age-appropriate for 16+. Understanding the cultural and religious dimensions of FGMC is crucial to developing effective strategies for prevention and eradication. The intersection of these factors with public policy and healthcare services has far-reaching implications for the well-being of impacted individuals and the success of global efforts to combat FGMC. In this episode, we will explore the diverse viewpoints held by individuals from communities impacted by the practice. We will uncover how cultural, social, and historical factors influence these perspectives. Joining us for today's discussions are Reham and Cindy. They are both community advocates actively involved in the Flourish Project. Thank you for joining us, ladies, and please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, my name is Cindy Kamau, and I'm currently a 2L student at Osgoode Hall Law School. I am heavily involved in extracurricular activities, um, both within my law school as being part of the Black Law Association, as well as outside of law school and being actively involved in women's health and women's hands. I take great pride in the community work that I do. As a little bit of a background, I'm from Kenya. I was born and raised in Kenya, and I also grew up here in Toronto. So I speak here as a Black African woman, and I look forward to this to this discussion. Hi, everyone. I'm Reham Tima. I work in different sectors. However, I also have a voice when it comes to health. So I do have a role as health ambassador with uh, Women's Health and Women's Hands. Uh, my background, um, I'm a Middle Eastern. I'm from Egypt, and uh, I'm also advocating for the FGM. Thank you, Cindy and Reham, and welcome. And once again, we look forward to this discussion. So we'll start this conversation by asking, how have cultural and historical factors contributed to the support for and opposition against the practice of FGMC in different communities around the world? What are common arguments that you've seen that are made by each side in this debate? Well, I can start off by looking around the society where I was raised up. Uh, So in Egypt, as an example, uh, so there is always a claim uh, that religion contributes to the um, why, you know, there is the concept of the FGM. 
why it has to be done this way, why it has to be in the society. Uh, so it's, it's pretty much a false uh, interpretation of what is written or what was really in any kind of religious books. However, that was a false interpretation. So it's somehow linked to religion and also culture. And then, yeah, I've, I've seen it in other kind of similar countries where religion um, is kind of also taking over or controlling uh, the women's behavior or how it's, you know, like it's um, evaluated in the way that the girl has to be raised up in this way. So she can be uh, the innocent, the pure, and uh, the good girl when it comes to the marriage, um, I would say, age. So I've seen, I've seen a lot of reasons and justifications uh, around that area. Uh, Egypt is absolutely an example, and also the surrounding countries. I totally understand the practice has no health benefits for girls and women, and definitely that caused severe bleeding and problems. However, uh, understanding or someone with the um, knowledge would definitely not go through this process. Some families, they are knowledgeable enough that they can say no, and they cannot really be under the control of religion or specific cultural aspects. However, there are all, like also a high percentage of people that they are controlled by cultural aspects and religious views. Thank you very much for that, Reham. You are very correct in the fact that there is a false interpretation of religious teaching that does fall, not only the practice of FGMC, but also in general how women are expected to behave, uh, whether that is in the home, in public, especially when it comes to marriage and relationship. Cindy, what do you have to say about this question? Yeah, I will echo some of the sentiments that Reham mentioned. Uh, I will say from you know, Kenyan perspective, or I would say also quite a number of tribes, for example, in Kenya, uh, the reason why FGM is performed is particularly cultural, um, historical, but primarily cultural. So, for example, in some cultures, it's more of like a rite, rite of passage to womanhood in the same way that a lot of cultures accept men to be circumcised when they're entering their adulthood, going from a little boy and transitioning to a man. A lot of women also have the FGM practice to signify that they're transitioning from being a girl to becoming a woman. In other cultures, for example, rather than having it as more of a rite of passage towards womanhood, they have it more for the, or more almost like a sexual pleasure for the man. So a woman, for example, who has undergone FGM is seen to be more ready for marriage per se, or seem to be more loyal to the person that they're getting married to. Um, they seem more marriageable in some in the eyes of culture in the sense that their sexuality is under control. So I would say it's a mixture of like psychosexual reasons, but also uh, culture reasons. And for some cultures, it's more of it's just because that becomes such a common norm that it um, maybe cause feel pressure to participate in FGM because many women in their communities have done so. So it's less so for religious reasons, but more cultural norms that have taken place in a number of different tribes in Kenya. And I would see it in a lot of other African countries as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you that across um, many of the African countries where it is a prevalent practice, we do see that cultural reasons are what are one of the reasons why it's continued. And keeping up with tradition, rites of passage, you brought up some very good points of why the practice continues. Thank you for that. 
And so the next question is, um, what role do religious beliefs and traditional norms play in shaping attitudes towards FGMC? And how can non-profit organizations effectively engage with these communities to promote awareness, education, and ultimately the eradication of the practice? Uh, well, it's pretty much connected uh, to the first question. However, there is um, an addition to this part, which is the role of the not-for-profit organizations. But I would love to refer to the fact of the religion and also the religious impact. So I, I can always tell from, you know, again, being from Egypt, Islam is kind of the main religion or the primary religion. A majority of Egyptians are Muslims. So I've seen the FGM is, is often perceived as being connected to Islam, perhaps because it's practiced among many Muslim groups. Not all Islam, like kind of Islamic groups, practice the FGM. Uh, however, I, I've also know, uh, like it came to my knowledge later on, that it's not only for Muslim groups, also non-Islamic groups, they do it, including some Christians, Ethiopian Jews, and followers of certain traditional African religions. So I can get this knowledge that the, some African communities also maintain that female circumcision is not a religious practice or requirement. Uh, so as an, a false interpretation, the thing I really refer to, um, so in Egypt, uh, back in December of 1997, they were trying to get um, a court order and a mandate that like the circumcision, female circumcision is banned. That came into like reality and that's actually banned since 2006, seven, uh, because they had a ground saying that there is nothing in Quran in the religious book uh, states that or authorizes the female circumcision. So by saying that and by taking one country in the Muslim group, I would say, following uh, the court order or the mandate, this, is, this can be an example and it can also be taken into consideration. Talking about the not-for-profit organizations, yes, for sure they have a great role. Uh, especially when they have something to do with health. I'm referring to a, an example here in Toronto, which came to my knowledge by working and volunteering for them, women's health and women's hands. So absolutely uh, educating females, educating survivors, educating people from the communities, and even those who, who don't really know much about it. We all need to know about the consequences, the history, the background of this, and also how can we definitely you know, accommodate also the survivors and how can we advocate for that? I would love to see more and more of organizations like Women's Health and Women's Hands that can be spread over the GTA based on the location. I know that not all women, they are in downtown Toronto, but it will be amazing if we have also the facility in other places across the GTA. Thank you for sharing, Yeham. I really like the point how you mentioned the importance of the law aspect of FGMC and how that's really important across different countries and how like religious is an important aspect but doesn't really mention about FGM, practicing FGM. Thank you for sharing. Cindy, would you like to add any other information? Yes, of course. In terms of the traditional norms that shape the attitudes towards CFGM, 
alluded to them earlier, but while on one hand, you know, culture has the benefit of changing, like it has disadvantage sometimes of, you know, maybe leading leading or promoting certain practices that may not be good for women, namely at FGM, it also has the dual effect of also being the solution to the problem of FGM to begin with. So for example, while for example, some communities have the norm of participating in FGM as a rite of passage from being a girl to womanhood, I think cultures or traditional roles, especially the ones that recognize that it is a harmful practice that harms women and harms girls, they could rather switch from um, having FGM, for example, to other practices that offer women a right of, uh, uh, girls a right of passage to womanhood. And I think this is where the nonprofit organizations can come in because there are an increasing number of African cultures that have started to recognize that FGM practices is a harmful practice. It causes not, not just harm to just the physical and mental self, but it also causes harm to the reproductive system of women. So I think where NGOs can really come in is just helping the cultures, especially those that already recognize it to be a harmful practice, maybe figure out where and how, for example, we, um, the transition from FGM could be transitioned to other practices. For example, in Kenya, certain practices have decided to, rather than do FGM, for example, they have decided to take moments, for example, to just teach women how to be women. To know, instead of having like an actual practice that harms women, they instead do classes with them as a form of rite of passage. So I think NGOs can really do the work by connecting first with community members, for example, to participate in this practice, and also just reaching out and being a source of that change. So, for example, if cultures are transitioning out of FGM and they want to do a different practices to signify that rite of passage, I think NGOs, for example, could be a source of education, for example, and maybe providing people and facilitators with training. Or NGOs could also come in, maybe provide resources, for example, to help facilitate a, a shift from you know FGM to other rites of passages, for example. I think um, NGOs can't necessarily infiltrate culture. All they can do is support the culture that is already present. And then and they can only really help the cultures that are willing to change. I think the, the cultural attitudes have to change within themselves. And I think NGOs come in and assisting those cultures towards that change that they want to see eventually. So I think there's high potential for NGOs to come in. And also I think NGOs have to do effect of being just raising awareness to maybe those that don't know about FGM. I think FGM is something that we people within you know people within the cultures that know about FGM or have it maybe in within like for religious reasons or within their communities they tend to know about it because they've either heard of it from their communities or they know about it from their background. I think NGOs have the effect of also educating those that don't know so that they are able, for example, to make you no know, more change within society. So, for example, if a woman goes to a doctor and she had FGM performed on her when she was younger, if a doctor, for example, is not aware, then they they can't help her as much as another doctor who is aware. So I think NGOs also have the effect of being able to educate those that maybe don't know about FGM, whether it's in the healthcare sector, whether it's, you know, giving awareness to nurses or doctors, or in general, maybe in the community health spaces, such as in women's health and women's hands. I think just delivering that education to not just those who are aware and have FGM within the cultures, but also that don't know, will provide a healthier society and a transition towards having FGM in practice and a better, you know, FGM-free society in the future. Thank you for sharing, Cindy. I really liked how you mentioned the importance of culture and religion providing a positive aspect to um, advocacy in regards to FGMC and the importance of connecting with communities and supporting 
the positive outlook of how to spread awareness within the community and the healthcare and especially the social services um, aspects are very important to um, eradicate the practice of FGMC. Yeah, you both made very great points. And Saud and I have I've spoken about the alternative rites of passage a couple of times, and it's definitely a good way of moving away from the practice of FGMC and moving into a practice of we're still retaining our traditions and culture, but we're doing it in a safe way that does not negatively impact women's health and well-being. And mobilizing community leaders, community members to lead these new activities is the way to go where we're able to reach more people. And I'm like Reham had said, Women's Health and Women's Hands, an organization like ours, nonprofit, educating women by FGMC providing information, but um, an important part that you both also said is educating service providers and mobilizing them to then educate the clients from impacted communities in which they care for. And our final question for this conversation is around Canada's action against FGMC. So Canada has said their stand is they're against FGMC and they have created laws and made it illegal to practice here in Canada or even to take your child out abroad to have a practice on them. And they do fund organizations such as ours to provide activities and raise awareness. But many survivors have said that Canada is not doing enough. So how do you think the Canadian laws and policies surrounding FGMC reflect the varying degrees of social acceptance and resistance within Canada? And what do you think Canada can do better to help support survivors? All right. Uh, I'll go first. You know, I always dig into the history and um, I really like the idea that talking about what Canada is doing and what Canada is not doing, uh, it has been seen as not enough. So going back to the law, in, since 1997, uh, so they have the amendment in the Constitution, uh, which is a criminal code that indicates that any person who commits aggravated assault could face imprisonment for up to 14 years. This is as much as I remember. Uh, so it's a um, very strict, uh, I would say, law, and uh, it prohibits, definitely. So uh, this is like just legal part. Uh, talking about the funding part, I also dig into numbers and it looks like the government has increased the funding recently up to $650 million to sexual and reproductive health. This includes the FGMC. So what Canada can do more, like not talking about increasing the fund, maybe the allocation of the fund or maybe priorities of the workshops to maybe increasing the workshops or the content. So working more on the content, working more on the outreach, working more on reaching uh, the target audience. Definitely, this is something that can be done. So I would say more uh, rather than criminal code, rather than the funding part or the budget, maybe the allocation, prioritizing the budget allocation Content-wise, yes, uh, working towards the target audience, this can be done better. So it's more like the implementation. And so we have the action plan, but it needs to be implemented. So I'm seeing a better implementation um, by, I would say, people who have gone themselves through this so they can be the best advocates for it or 
can also give um, better workshops in terms of the content, in terms of feeling, um, you know, like the target audience, the outreach, definitely someone can represent the best, um, I would say example for the outreach. So this can be done better. And th these are my own suggestions and recommendations. Yeah, thank you for that, Reham. I, I do agree that there needs to be better allocation and prioritization of funds and project grants, and especially when it comes to FGMC. And then also when they do choose to fund projects, survivors should be the lead in the center of project action plans. Yeah, I really like um, the point that was made earlier. And if I'm, I'm to add to that, I think my biggest critique about Canada's system right now in dealing with FGM is the fact that not enough people are educated about it. And because the government hasn't made a systematic way for all Canadians to be educated on FGM. I'll give an example. Growing up in Kenya, we learned about FGM in our education school system. It was part of our grade five health curriculum. So it didn't matter like what happened. So long as you're passing through grade five, you learned about FGM growing up. You also learned, I think in grade eight, you learned about SEDs, STIs, as well as, for example, think like a lot of different various factors regarding reproductive health system. One failure that I see in the Canadian system is that there is not enough emphasis on reproductive health within the Canadian education system. And that is not drilled well enough into students that are going through the education system here. And even worse, that trickles down later to other, like other forms of systematic inequality tools that are face FGM. For example, when children go from, you know, being elementary school to high school to now maybe going in their undergrad, for example, in like public health, for example. These are future policymakers who don't even know what to do with FGM or who don't even know what it is because they've just never been in a space where they've been educated about it. Another example is that a lot of, for example, health health medical practitioners simply do not know about FGM. Some of them just learn on the like in practice what FGM is, and it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be a shock because now that creates stigmas for FGM survivors, for example. Like people going who are in nursing, who are doctors, who are even nursing care homes, they should know what FGM is. It should be part of their curriculum, part of their training, so they're better able to serve all clients. By people not knowing about FGM, it creates forms of inequality, especially for FGM survivors, or not even just FGM survivors, but those who may be vulnerable to FGM practices, but have been unable to find sources and outlets where they're understood and they're heard. So yeah, I would add on to the point made before, like, well, yes, money allocation is good. I think that money allocated should be allocated to those that are educated. But the government in itself should also make a systematic effort to make sure that all Canadians are educated on FGM. It doesn't help if only, for example, certain NGOs are educated on FGM, because that makes it harder for NGOs, for example, to even get funding for, you know, to support FGM survivors or those who are impacted by FGM. It only works if Canada as a government, as a system, is committed to understanding FGM, both in a medical practice, both as a historical and cultural and religious norm. They should know all facets of FGM. And I think that is the problem. The people who will go and make these policies don't know enough about FGM. They don't know what it entails. Even when they go make those policies, they don't even know where to put the money because they simply don't know what surrounds the practice. So in my opinion, I think it's just, it has to be from a grassroots bottom approach. I still think we have a, a long way to go, in my opinion. Very well spoken, Cindy. I 100% agree with you in terms of the government needing to tap into a systemic education plan 
Canada is a multicultural country and with rising immigration rates, we will have more and more survivors who reside in the country and receive um, mental health, physical health care. So it's very important that in all levels of the education system, from high school, um, university, professional courses, healthcare provider degrees, that they should be informed about FGM so that when a survivor does come to them, or if maybe they become the future policymakers, they are aware of what steps need to be taken to better support survivors. So thank you for that. Examine the viewpoints of individuals or communities both in favor of and against the practice of FGMC, exploring the cultural, social, and historical factors that shape these perspectives and analyzing the implications for our efforts to prevent and eradicate FGMC are important community engagement and advocacy work. A big thank you to Reham and Cindy for joining us today as we've heard the conversations around FGMC are involving and their efforts to challenge harmful beliefs and practices even within communities where it is deeply entrenched. Empowering survivors, engaging religious and community leaders and fostering open dialogue are essential steps in this ongoing journey toward ending FGMC and ensuring the physical and psychological well-being of future generations. Yes, a very big thank you, Reham and Cindy, for joining us today. Next week, our listeners can join us as we continue to explore critical issues that impact our world and the diverse perspectives that shape them. Mm-hmm.